0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we get the details on a friendly wager between Ken Caldera, senior scientist at the Carnegie Institution, and Ted Nordhaus, founder and executive director of the Breakthrough Institute. Ted is betting that global CO2 emissions peaked in 2019, but Ken disagrees. In our conversation, we'll hear from each of them, laying out the arguments for, and against, and exploring the underlying factors that will likely drive the outcome of the wager. We'll talk about the role of COVID-19, energy technology, human behavior, and even the extinction of the dinosaurs. Stay with us. Okay, Ken Caldera of the Carnegie Institution and Ted Nordhaus of the Breakthrough Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having us.
1: Yes, thanks.
0: So we're going to talk today about a bet that the two of you have made about the future of Uh, carbon dioxide emissions. But before we do that, neither of you have been on the show before, which is uh, somewhat surprising because you're both really prominent and great in in your respective fields. Um, So it would be fantastic if you could each tell us briefly what steered you to work on environmental issues in your life. And Ken, let's start with you.
1: After college, I was working in the financial district in New York doing software development for investment banks and also doing security stuff for the New York Stock Exchange and so on. And it was interesting, but I felt I was spending my life helping rich people to become richer. And I came across an article in the New York Times and Steve Schneider was at a AAAS conference and spoke about the possibility of the Antarctic ice sheet melting. And it just blew my mind that human activity could change climate in a way that would melt Antarctica, and this was in 1979, and and I saw the article, and basically around 1985, I left my Wall Street job and started a PhD program at New York University, but, uh, you know, my goal really was to learn the science and try to be politically effective at addressing the climate change problem. Yeah. And just so our listeners know, what did you end up getting your PhD in? It was in atmospheric sciences. But my actual PhD, I I wanted to understand, you know, what happened was I was trying to understand the consequences of increasing atmospheric CO2 content. And because of that, I I thought, well, I need to understand why was CO2 what it was 200 years ago? And that got me into trying to understand the geologic carbon cycle. My PhD dissertation ended up being... About what happened to the carbon cycle when uh, the meteorite hit the Earth that wiped out the dinosaurs, because that also wiped out a lot of marine life, and really that research led directly to my work in ocean acidification. So the, I, I have this sort of long-term geologic background, and which tends to, uh, for me a century seems like a short amount of time. And I think, and and. and uh, you know, so I'm used to thinking in terms of hundreds of years as being relatively short.
0: Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Well, that, we'll see if that comes up in our conversation over the next uh, 25, 30 minutes. Um, Ted, how about you? Uh, how did you get interested in working on
2: environmental issues? Well, I sort of unintentionally ended up in, uh, in the family business, um, as it turns <laughs> out. Uh, my dad was basically the first environmental lawyer in Washington, um, Really started the first climate change practice um, back in the mid 90s uh, and uh, had a long history well before that on sort of foundational environmental regulatory law. Uh, and my uncle is uh, Bill Nordhaus, who uh, won the Nobel a couple of years and was really the first environmental economist. So, um, but I actually didn't think I was getting into that business. I thought I was doing real grassroots political work, spent the first half of my career, um, you know, running real grassroots environmental campaigns uh, on the ground. And then over time sort of ended up um, kind of through a series of uh, path dependencies, let's just say, uh, or perhaps bad decisions running a think tank. <laughs> um, but, um, but uh, you know, I think kind of growing up um, around those two guys, I sort of absorbed uh, a lot, uh, and, and, uh, learned a lot, uh, from both of them. And I like to think that even though we, uh, you know, my dad passed away a couple of years, but, but he and, and Bill and I all have somewhat different views on a bunch of these different issues. I think we all sort of sit in a sort of broader, uh, pragmatic tradition with regard to, uh, dealing with environmental challenges. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense.
0: Well, let's uh, let's get into the meat of our conversation today. And, and I want to give our listeners just a, a little bit of background before I turn it back over to you all. So as pretty much everyone listening will know, global CO2 emissions declined dramatically in 2020 uh, because of coronavirus. Uh, as the economy hopefully recovers over the next year or you know, hopefully sooner than that, over the next few months, uh, we would expect to see some type of rebound in greenhouse gas emissions but there's a question of whether emissions will return to their pre-pandemic levels or whether 2019 was actually the peak year of emissions globally. Um, Many people have offered opinions on this question. Uh, Ken and Ted also have their opinions and what makes them distinct is that they decided to put some money uh, on the line to uh, try to answer this question. Um, Ted is wagering that emissions peaked in 2019 and ken is taking the other side of the bet Uh, it's important to note that we all hope that ted is right um but uh but you know we're not sure and there are points pointing in either direction Um, ken and ted uh, and myself and all of our listeners you will certainly know that there's a lot of uncertainty around this question and no one's trying to be nostradamus here Uh, but i think the idea is that you know, Ken and Ted are making a friendly bet, recognizing they could each be wrong as a way to kind of explore the issue. So we're going to explore the issue today and talk about whether emissions peaked in 2019 or not. So let's start with Ted. Um, Ted, what's the best argument that you can think of for why emissions peaked in 2019?
2: Well, I mean, the best argument for, uh, you know, and the basis of my argument is that is that emissions have been trending towards a peak for you know, about a decade now, really, since the last big uh, financial shock uh, during the financial crisis. And, you know, most analyses sort of had emissions peaking some point in the middle of this coming decade. And that was all prior to the pandemic. So, you know, you get a big economic shock, a big drop in emissions, uh, the likelihood that it's going to take a couple of years for the economy to fully bounce back. And by the time it comes back, I, my wager, at least, is that these longer-term trends uh, will have uh, sort of continued long enough that we never get back to that 2019 level. Um, but obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty <laughs> around all of this. So uh, that's why you make a bet and you lay out the terms. And uh, I think what's great about long bets, where we made the bet, is that you have to be real... Very specific about the terms of the bet, and you have to put your money up front. There's uh, a long history of um, people losing these bets, claiming retroactively that they didn't really lose them and not paying. Um, so uh, I will happily pay. Um, and no, Ken will as well, and we won't have a choice. But um, I think it's, it's in terms of sort of being analysts and pundits or whatever you want to call us in this role we're playing right now. Uh, i think having some accountability around our claims is a really healthy thing
0: absolutely and just so listeners are aware of one detail of the bet and correct me if i'm wrong but the detail is that the bet essentially runs through 2030. Um, so there's a implicit assumption that emissions will not peak after 2030 is that right
1: uh, yeah I, I, we did not explicitly say anything about after 2030 but uh, that's an interesting question, but maybe we should talk about the next decade first, and then we'll <laughs> talk about longer time prospects. But, but I, this is a really interesting question. Yeah.
0: Okay. Great. Well, um, so so we will save that, and let me now ask you, Ken, uh, to give us you know just a really succinct version of the argument for why emissions have not yet peaked, whether this decade or further out in the future.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My argument is kind of embarrassingly. Simple and also uh, maybe antediluvian in in some respects. In that, uh, you know, if you're trying to figure out where a car is going, right, one thing you can do is ask the driver and, you know, look at plans and what people are, are thinking of doing. And the other thing you can do is, well, look at what, you know, how has that car been hurtling and what's it been doing in the past. And for 2019 to have been peak emissions, emissions would need to decline at a sort of decadal scale faster than they've ever declined before. And And I don't, I don't want to say that, oh, that something that's never happened before couldn't happen. I mean, after the 1970s uh, oil shock, uh, you know global emissions actually declined in the early 1980s or around 1980. And so it's not unprecedented. And then also emissions declined again after 1990 and then with the 2008-9. And so there have been brief periods of decline. But on the decadal scale, there's always been substantial increases in emissions. And, and uh, you know, if you step back, again, I said I tend to look at things in century scales. If you look at the emissions trajectory over the last centuries, it looks... A lot like an exponential curve, and that the idea that that the uh, it's going to flip over, uh, you know, it's not impossible, but it would be unprecedented. So I, I just kind of felt it was relatively safe to argue that something that's never happened before is has a lower than fifty percent probability of happening in the future. I know that's not a very strong argument, but. It's not just you know mathematicians. You can think of like what's the value of, of some function like CO two emissions, and then you could talk about the rate of change, but then you could talk about the curvature, of the, or the, what mathematicians call the second derivative. The and, and so what what's how fast have emissions changed on the decadal scale? And you know the curvature in the emissions curve at that decadal scale has never been so rapid. Uh, that we, uh, is what we would need to see a decline in emissions going into the future, and it would need to be more or less twice uh, the rate, uh, the curve, the, the sort of the curvature, the curving over of the emissions trend would need to be twice as sharp as say what happened in the, in the after the oil shock around 1980, and so it's it's not impossible, but the rate at which things would need to change. Would have to be sort of double what whatever has happened before. Now, I have to say that in my sort of extrapolating method of thinking about this, COVID is not really brought into the case. And I and I have to say that uh, you know, looking at the amount of time it took to recover, you know, both around 1980, 1990, and two thousand eight, that you know that it's really COVID that gives me the. Uh, a little bit of pause that, uh, you know, just seeing how it's completely out of control and that it might have economic consequences that might last longer. Right. Uh, but, But so basically, my argument is as simple as saying that a continuation of past trends would indicate that CO2 emissions is going to keep going up. And there's another part of this, and that has to do with motivated reasoning. And, you know, I don't want emissions to go up but I want, you know, most of the emissions this century are projected to come from developing countries. And I don't want to see CO2 emissions, but I want to see them get richer and, you know, have healthier living conditions rapidly. And so I'm hoping that the developing world's going to develop really rapidly. And I think that will result in more CO2 emissions. But I have to say that that's that might be just motivated thinking, hoping that we're going to see an increase in economic activity in the global South. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, motivated reasoning definitely shapes how all of us think about everything, but uh, but, but I'm glad you, you brought it up and, and recognize it. Um, let's turn back to Ted uh, and ask you, Ted, if you can maybe build on some of the points that Ken made and argue against yourself. Uh, so can you highlight one or two other factors that might lead you to lose the bet?
2: Sure. uh, I easily lose the bet. Uh, I mean, I'll say that, you know, when (laughs) it's kind of amazing how long it took us to get it together, mostly my fault, um, uh, to actually make the bet. Because when we first discussed it, it was a sort of interaction on Twitter back in May. Um, (laughs) And at that time, um, you know, there was really no uh, vaccine on the horizon. Um, And, you know, it was a time where... I think, um, you know, there was sort of a lot of, uh, what I would call sort of, uh, happy talk about V-shaped recoveries and things like that, which I was very skeptical about. Um, in part because I certainly didn't anticipate that we'd have, uh, you know, working vaccines by the end of this year. Um, so, so to some degree, you know, I was betting that, you know, we were looking at several years of, you know at best a very slow economic growth um and um you know i think i've kind of like i think a lot of people uh sort of gone back and forth especially over these last months you know sort of some some being just thrilled that it looked like we had these vaccines and and they were going to be available very quickly and then uh sort of somewhat um Uh, let's just say, disappointed at uh, some of the difficulties and logistics of actually getting people vaccinated um, at rates that uh, would very quickly get us out of the situation we're in today. So, um, you know, I think a very rapid V-shaped recovery uh, makes my prospects uh, for winning this bet a lot less likely. Um, On the other hand, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, to, to sort of build a bit on Ken's point, um, I mean, really whether or not emissions sort of peak uh, peaked in 2019 or this coming decade or is really a question of whether um, uh, the carbon intensity of the global economy falls faster than um, economic growth uh, expands. So it's a, actually in some sense a... Lots of complexity within it, but it's sort of very simple mathematical question. And then the question is, where does that growth in terms of emissions start from? Um, so emissions are sort of down pretty significantly in 2020. Uh, I think given now what I think is the, you know, if, if we get a really robust recovery in 2021, I think uh, the chances are decent that I lose this bet in 2021, 2022, just because things come back really, really fast and you get huge investments in stimulus and things like that to sort of, uh, you know, in China, the U.S., lots of other places. um, And, uh, you know, the uh, growth uh, outstrips sort of the the trend in falling carbon intensity of the global economy. Um, I feel like if I lose this bet, I'm going to lose it in the next couple of years. I feel like... If we get out to 2024, 2025, I feel pretty confident I'm going to win it.
0: Uh-huh. Yep. That makes sense. So, yeah, Ken, can you chime in, uh, either building on what Ted said or, or maybe also to elaborate on why other factors that might lead
1: you to lose the bet? I think Ted put his finger right on the central issue. To me, this, sort of, this question of how fast the economy recovers from this COVID disaster – it's important but to people interested in century scale energy transitions it's not so critical but this other point that ted raised that if we have an a rate of economic growth so how fast does say global gdp increase and then we have what are what is the co2 emissions per dollar of gdp generated and the question really is is the economy improving its carbon intensity such that the amount of emissions per unit GDP is falling more rapidly than GDP is rising. And I think this is really the crux of, and and I, you know, so what do we all want? We all should want, uh, I know there is like no growth and you could say that for the rich countries, but most people in the world, uh, their welfare would be improved if their standard of living went up. Most people would like to see GDP increase as rapidly as possible, but we'd like to see the environmental consequences of that GDP fall as rapidly as possible. And so we'd like to see carbon intensity fall more rapidly than GDP growths, but both of those to be as high as possible. And the interesting kind of bet, but maybe less sort of publicly salient is, you know, which growth rate will be higher, the GDP growth rate or the rate of decarbonization. And in my day job, I'm doing everything I can do to make that rate of decarbonization be as rapid as possible. And I'll lose if, uh, you know, so, you know, nobody wants to lose because of bad GDP growth. And I, I want to lose because I underestimated the rate of decarbonization. And I, I guess partly why I'm under maybe perhaps underestimating the rate of decarbonization is I know that solar and wind you know, have come down greatly in cost. And in many places for bulk power, you know, wind or solar can be the cheapest source. And a lot of my work in my day job has been looking at very deep decarbonization scenarios where you don't have some natural gas left over to provide flexibility. And and, and it's very difficult for these intermittent renewables to supply the power in those scenarios. And and so I think some of my the difficulties in looking how wind and solar work in deep decarbonization scenarios may have colored some of my perception of the utility of wind and solar in shallower decarbonization scenarios where you do have a lot of grid flexibility, so natural gas or other things that could come in or out when the wind's blowing or the sun's not shining. And so I, I, I do think that there's a possibility that some of my focus on deep decarbonization scenarios have colored my perception of how much could be done in shallower decarbonization with these kinds of technologies. Right.
0: That makes sense. And I mean, I, I know you're well aware of this, but that the points you touched on were mostly relevant to the power sector, uh, and um, you know there are a whole another set of issues to think about when we think about industrial emissions and transportation emissions and buildings no. and all yeah. that stuff. And I know you recognize that.
1: Yeah, yeah no, it's true. Uh, no, this is uh, very good, good that you brought that up because uh, yeah, most of the uh, yeah the power sector is a, a minority, you know, of our CO2 emissions and things like heating. And, uh, you know, making and things like making steel and cement and so on are substantial contributors to emission and and uh, are very difficult to decarbonize and...
2: Uh... Ken, can I build on yeah. your point a little bit? Sure. Because uh, I want to really agree with Ken on a couple of things here. Um, I mean, the first is, like, we've made a bet about peak emissions. and. Peak emissions is just a far, far cry from deep decarbonization, <laughs> yeah. or stabilizing atmospheric concentrations of CO two, um, or uh, um, temperature stabilization. Um, it's none of those things. I mean, it's a it's a way station. You got to get past the peak before you can get to any of those things. But it's a long, long way, and it's really interesting since we made this bet. Um, and you know, um, Twitter is not. Uh, in most regards, a reflection of anything in the world. Um, But I think uh, in sort of a bunch of the response, uh, it is because almost everyone thinks I'm going to be wrong, (laughs) at least if you follow my Twitter feed. Um, And um, if you look at where sort of the popular whatever Twitter-ish imagination, it's that emissions are just going to keep increasing rapidly as far as the eye can see. Um, and there's just no, you know, uh, we may or may not be at a peak, but all of the trend, you know, we're past peak coal, um, we're past peak oil. Um, and um, I think that, you know, most folks who kind of have looked at this carefully would say, well, you know, whether we're past the peak or not, we're probably close to sort of basically a long plateau uh, in emissions. Now that is wildly insufficient if you're trying to stabilize atmospheric concentrations. If you're gonna stabilize atmospheric concentrations, you don't necessarily need to get them exactly to zero, but you need to get them pretty darn close to zero. And those are huge, huge cuts that's deep decarbonization, and that's much much harder than peak emissions um and I think that even though people kind of somewhere in their head know these are different things, I think people get them almost emotionally all mixed up, and they're not the same thing so when we start talking about deep decarbonization, I'm with Ken I think uh, we're a long way from it. I think it's going to be very hard to get there um, I have I'm on the record in multiple ways saying that not only do I not think that 1.5 degrees stabilization is realistic, but I think two degrees is going to be pretty darn uh, unlikely as well. I think that we're, um, you know, these sort of crazy, you know, four or five degrees of warming in the century is completely unrealistic. I think we're going to end up somewhere between two and three degrees. And if we do a good job, we're going to be closer to two. And if we don't, we're going to be closer to three. Um, but all of that is just to say that 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 is all about really what happens after the peak and how rapidly we're able to bend that curve down. And that is not actually on the table in terms of this bet at all.
1: Right? Yes. Yeah, and I think I think that uh, you know while I still think I'm more likely to win than, than is Ted, that I think I'm my my reasoning, is somewhat faulty, in that I, I do think the challenges of deep decarbonization have kind of filtered into my thinking about the sort of challenges of doing anything. And there, you know, over the last five years, at least in the electric power sector, I, I think the view has really changed. Where uh, you know, I guess there was this McDonald et Al study that Chris Clack was involved in, and then another study, the NREL deep decarbonization study, and that. You know, it's increasingly looking like, you know, maybe up to eighty percent of the power sector might not be that hard to decarbonize if it, if you have substantial natural gas or other means of grid flexibility left over, and so that that and it, you know, wind and solar have come down in in costs, and so that often the cheapest way to add electricity to a system. You know, that already exists and therefore has some flexibility is just to add wind and solar. And so, yeah, so if I'm wrong, it's because I probably misjudged how much the electric power sector would adopt these carbon neutral technologies. But I guess I'm still skeptical about the rest of the heating and so on that, that, Basically, the, the mantra is that you want to electrify as much as you can and then decarbonize the electricity system. So you'd like to have heat pumps and you'd like to have electric cars and things like that. And, but infrastructure takes time. And, 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 and so it's it's one thing if you're expanding an economy and you're adding new stuff and then you can have carbon neutral stuff. But if you really need to start reducing emissions... You, you you know you, you need to start replacing CO2 emitting infrastructure with infrastructure that's not CO2 emitting and that takes a lot longer. Yeah, absolutely. So there's one thing I kind of wanted to say, which I didn't say so far, in that you know, would in the early 2000s uh, the temperatures weren't going up so rapidly and everybody was talking about a hiatus and are we? you know are we seeing some end of global warming and as as climate scientists were trained not to look at single decades and think that's an indicator of a long-term trend and then typically climate scientists think of well something needs to persist for around 30 years for it to be reliably thought of as a long-term trend and so while the events of the last years have been COVID aside and trump aside quite promising in, in many respects, um, you know the question of well, will this trend of the last several years continue into the future, or will we see a resurgence of you know when we saw people invent fracking and natural gas got cheap, you know maybe coal mining will get much cheaper or something else. Who knows?
0: Yeah, good points. And just as you've emphasized a couple times, really worth thinking about the long run, uh, even as we keep an eye on the short-term trends. So. As we close out today, um, you know this has been a fascinating conversation. I I do want to ask you just if you could briefly comment on a big picture question, kind of zooming out from uh, our emissions trend lines and technologies. Um, there have been a lot of comparisons that folks have made between COVID nineteen and climate change in terms of um, you know the problem and how government may or may not address the problem. We're not going to try to litigate all those, but I'm curious from each of your perspectives. Is there one particular thing that you take away from COVID-19 and humanity's response to it uh, that informs us about how humanity may or may not be able to tackle climate change successfully? And you can take this at a domestic level or a global level or, you know, however you want. Um, Ted, why don't you uh, chime in first on that?
2: Yeah, I think it's a pretty strong case for the techno fix. Um, You know, (laughs) uh, if you look at... Just how hard it has been, um, to kind of, uh, limit behaviors to really sort of limit the spread of this virus and the, and the fallout, um, in terms of both the economy, in terms of people's quality of life, uh, in terms of all sorts of other things that we care about. I mean, this should just put an end to, I mean, it won't, but it should put an end to people kind of suggesting that sort of degrowth is the answer to to climate change, should put an end to people who are like, this is all about behavior change um, and social engineering. Um, You know, we're even as contested as, you know, things like mask wearing and and those kind of behaviors have been, all those people are going to line up for a vaccine. Um, you know, Florida, Texas, all these places where there's sort of ostensibly all of this sort of science denial around, you know, whether COVID is a flu or a plague, uh, and whether masks work or not. Boy, people lining up around the blocks to get those shots. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, <laughs> not surprisingly, given my position on the climate issue, uh, and my priors and the institute I run, you know, the only long-term solution is the techno-fix. We are not going to sort of completely reorganize uh, society or end capitalism or do any of the things that various folks demand um, to to save the world from climate change. We're going to deal with it to the degree to which we deal with it with just better technologies that allow people to go about their lives uh, without creating carbon and putting it in the atmosphere, just full stop.
0: Mm-hmm. Ken, how about you? what What's a takeaway that you think you'll come away from this year with?
1: First of all, I, I like Ted's point about sometimes it's easier to find a technological solution than change people's behavior. But um, the main thing I draw from this COVID crisis is the importance of having a shared set of facts based on good science and and People and politicians can disagree about what the appropriate policy response is to that factual situation, but that if uh, people don't recognize the facts on the ground, the policy response is not going to be successful. And, and so I, th- I, I think that the response to COVID shows that it's okay for us to disagree about how to respond to threats, but uh, we should agree on what those threats are. That's very well
0: said. I've been thinking about that one a lot myself. Um, Well, before we close it out, guys, uh, this has been really fascinating. uh, But I want to ask you each, again, the question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something to our listeners that you've read or watched or heard recently that you think is really interesting uh, and that you'd like to share uh, with a broader audience. So Ken, why don't you go first? What's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack?
1: Well, I've been an advisor recently up at Gates Ventures, and Bill has written a new book, which I've been privileged to uh, help be a fact checker for, and which should be coming out in February. And uh, the the book title is How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates. It's basically about trying to reduce the, what he's calling the green premium, the additional cost of carbon neutral technologies. Hmm. Interesting,
0: Ted. How about you? What's uh, what would you like to recommend?
2: Um, you know, I think the, the the most interesting book I read in the last year was uh, Vaclav Smil's uh, book uh, called Growth. Um, yeah, I actually uh, reviewed it uh, for uh, New Atlantis uh, in the, this last winter. Um, but you know, I think it's kind of quite apropos to the conversation we're having today, um, which is um, you know, as much as anything, like like trying to kind of predict, project trends into the future is really, really hard uh, because, you know, these are all sort of almost always some version of an S-curve. And, you know, the problem is that the sort of fog of the present means that it's very difficult to figure out in many cases where exactly you are on that S-curve. Are you at the bottom? Are you at the top? Are you in the middle of it? Um, so uh, I thought that book... book Uh, There were a bunch of things in that book I thought were fabulous, and I love Vaclav. Um, There were things I disagreed with, but I think the thing that I took away from that book is just that, um, you know, uh, it's easy to see these things in hindsight and very, very difficult to figure out what's going on when you're right in the middle of it.
1: Absolutely. Um, Let me just say at the end here that I usually, in my professional work, try to avoid making predictions of the future, because that's a sure way to be wrong, is to predict the future frequently. And, and so part of this bet context is that, it, look, it is a bet, and that it's not, uh, you know, if, if something was a fact that I was certain of, I could put it in one of my scientific or technical papers. Uh, you know, this is kind of speculation and fun.
0: Yes, absolutely, and I think you know. Hopefully, our listeners uh, take that away, and, and they understand that this is a friendly bet about something where there's everyone recognizes there's enormous uncertainty, um, and we'll watch over the next few years, and maybe over the next ten years how it plays out, and maybe uh, if and when we have a resolution to the bet, we'll have you guys both back on the show, and we'll talk about what happened. Sounds great. Great. Well, once again, Ted Nordhaus of the Breakthrough Institute and Ken Caldera of the Carnegie Institution. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you, bye. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.